This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus in biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Elena Esposito about the new book, Artificial Communication, How Algorithms Produce Social Intelligence. Algorithms that work with deep learning and big data are getting so much better at doing so many things that that makes us uncomfortable. In artificial communication, Elena Esposito argues that drawing this sort of analogy between algorithms and human intelligence is misleading. Esposito proposes that we think of smart machines not in terms of artificial intelligence, but in terms of artificial communication. Elena, welcome to the show. Hi, Kalina. Thanks a lot. I'm very happy to be here. So how are you? How has your week been? Well, so I'm in Bologna in Italy now, and spring is beginning, or almost summer. That's, of course, very nice. Even if, uh, like everywhere, you know, here in Europe, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hard time. It's a dark time. The war is here around the corner, so you cannot be really um, so serene without any negative thoughts. Yeah, for sure. It's really difficult times now. Yeah, yeah. So can you tell us what do you do? Well, I'm a sociologist uh, and I'm, well, my everyday life, I'm a university professor and I have this this sort of unusual um, situation that I'm half time in Italy, where I'm now in Bologna, and half time in Germany because I sort of, I have a double affiliation to to universities. And, um, yeah. So how did you get interested in sociology? Oh, um, that's, we are going back some decades. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was one, a young stuck at the university. And you say, I was really looking for something really exciting. And that's not the first theoretical exciting, challenging, 
difficult, complex, and really interesting and relevant also for our society. And uh, that's not what you first associate with sociology being so exciting. But it was at the time, I was in Bologna in the 80s, and it was a really interesting, vibrant time at, at this decade in Bologna, which actually now it becomes sort of a mythical decade. People remember it. Uh, it was really... Um, there was so much going on, and uh, it was sort of a um, crucial point for the industry developments in Italy. And I studied, I happened, my university professor, my, my first degree, I did it with Umberto Eco, uh, who was a great teacher. At the time, it didn't become the sort of a world-famous um, intellectual. He was already very famous, but on a different level. And he was a great teacher. And... So I became interested in questions related to language and media and the uh, um, way to deal with that. Also, the beginning of thought about computers that at the time, um, and that was the beginning of the interest in this topic. Um, but then I, uh, I, um, so I moved from a more philosophical interest to a more um, sociological one, because I happened to meet, um, well, the work, and then of the person who became my, my um, PhD supervisor, which is not very well known in the English-speaking world, but it is extremely famous and highly reputed in Europe. And the name is Niklas Luhmann, <clears throat> who taught at the time in Germany. And so I moved from Bologna to Germany, and that, that's how I um, it happened to me that uh, developed the same topic, the same interest in well, media, communication, uh, social effect of these things from a more sociological perspective, more than a semiotical one or a philosophical one, which, so, so of course, remain in my background, but it's not what I'm doing now. And what excites you about working in academia? Uh, well, what excites me is, uh, well, mostly there are some things that I find so exciting, actually, but uh, what, what I really find rewarding is still, I, I love my job, uh, is on one hand, you can develop always new topics. And, uh, and you, for example, in our, my, my field in the humanities, you don't even need that very much founding or, or machines and so on. So we are always, if you can you are challenged at the best level that you can do on the topics that you find most interesting. And that's really a big um, advantage because it is a sort of a never-ending adventure in a sense. That's one aspect. And the other one is, well, it's really nice to be in a, a, a continuously in a, a everyday contact with new young, young generation and uh, students who are clever, uh, informed, uh, updated, and that's also very rewarding. And what would you say to our student listeners and also early career researchers? Yeah, yeah, students and colleagues, of course. Uh, young people, and of course also the, the peers. No? Also, that's a, um, We have a, in academia a strange, structured, but also continuously open social life because, well, as students and young career researchers, but also colleagues, you go to conferences and you always meet people who are unknown, 
strangers, but with whom it's very easy to come in contact because of shared interest. So it's on the social life, it's also really, um, really interesting. So your latest book is Artificial Communication, How Algorithms Produce Social Intelligence. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Uh, yeah, it is well, the topic of uh, artificial intelligence and how to deal from a sociological point of view with, with this uh, new trend is something that I have been well, working on since decades. I said already in the 80s, the question was there. And, and it was at the time where the debate on, well, the artificial features of uh, intelligence machine, or even what the, what the debate was at the time, the idea they could have a consciousness, can become sentient uh, beings and so on, um, was widespread and very interesting. And so I started thinking about that at the time, but Uh, but in a sense, like testing some uh, aspect of that. And uh, um, so I was, I could say that I, but I worked on other topics. I worked on fashion, I worked on memory and forgetting, I worked on probability calculus. But then in the last 10 years, I had the impression that uh, what's going on now with the new algorithm, with the new development in digital um, media and digital techniques, um, was ripe to deal with this uh, long topic from a different perspective. I have the impression that really we are at a turning point. And um, so I wanted to focus on that, uh, and um, that's how the book came out. So let's delve into some of the topics that you cover in your book, and we can start with the very basics. So can you explain what is artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's it's not this basic question, but not an easy one, because <laughs> it's something what people are talking about since since computer began, since the end of the fifties, and the idea basically is uh, the hope or the possibility, and sometimes the fear also that it's possible to reproduce with machines, with computers, of course, and we're talking about these general purpose machines that began at the time, uh, the feature of uh, human intelligence. And yeah, then the way how people understood the idea of intelligence, the artificial reproduction of intelligence, developed a lot in the last, in these 70 years or yeah, almost 70 years of um, research on that. But the idea basically remains that the machine should, could, in different ways, become intelligent. Uh, abstract intelligent, emotional intelligence, practical intelligence, that, that's a lot of uh, a different way to understand it. So there are different ways uh, that uh, we can sort of apply this terminology to different aspects. Are they all correct? Uh, they are all correct because uh, um, what we saw also is that this uh, debate about artificial intelligence in this long 50 years or so uh, also focused on some aspect of, of another feature that was also not clear from the beginning, human intelligence. So thinking about the reproduction of intelligence in machines helped us to understand how many different kinds of intelligence exist um, well, computational intelligence, of course, but also yeah, emotional intelligence or um, ability to uh, move in an environment. There are many, many different features that we, without 
really being clear about that, um, what reproduces with machine, and uh, uh, we attribute it to the, in, well, the ability to be intelligent by human beings. So what are some of the drawbacks of how we are currently thinking about the artificial intelligence? Yeah, what struck me from the very beginning, when people talk about it, is that, uh, of course, the idea of artificial intelligence is compelling and is fascinating, but if you think about as a metaphor, as a research program, it's sort of strange, because uh, we want to reproduce with machines something of which we already know, we actually know very, very little, because the idea from the very beginning was to reproduce not only the mind of human beings, but in a sense also, as now people talk about neural networks, the brain, so the working of the hardware that um, in human beings produces our intelligent features. And we still know very, very little uh, about the brain. The brain is a fascinating mystery also for neurophysiologists. And what intelligence is, uh, well, the debate about artificial intelligence here um, showed also that we also know very little about that, what intelligence is. So in a sense, it's a strange metaphor. Hmm. So what does artificial communication mean? Uh, we had the impression that um, to understand how machines are working now, because now this machine with a new kind of algorithm with the, the labels are machine learning and big data. So since 15 years, more or less, um, machines are working a different way. And they are, um, well, they can do amazing things. They can communicate with us. They can write books. Uh, they can paint pictures. They can um, compose music and so on. Uh, but it seems to become more and more clear to me that they do that, not because they finally are, have become able to, to be intelligent, but because the way of programming them has changed. And the machine, in a sense, the programmer themselves don't try anymore to emulate human intelligence. In a sense, I would say this machine has become able to do these apparent intelligent things, not because they have become intelligent, but because they don't try to be intelligent anymore. And that's what brought me to propose to shift from the metaphor of intelligence to the method of communication. The idea these machines, these performances, are due to the fact that machines are beginning to learn to communicate with us. And that seems to me the new, really exciting phenomenon. So concepts like algorithms seem to play quite a central role in all of this. So can you explain what exactly is an algorithm? Yeah, yeah, it is a, yeah, an algorithm is also is a fashionable word now. And yeah, this, but uh, in a sense, what the way we are talking about algorithms since like 20 years is relatively unprecise, but so established that also I use this idea because algorithms by themselves are something which is not new at all. Uh, the word, the idea comes from the 17th century and in general, well, the in beginning of computerization, one talked with, in the 50s, one talked about computers, but the computers work with algorithms. Algorithms are, are a sequence of steps that can be followed in a certain order and come to a um, um, 
some result. In a sense, also uh, chicken, uh, kitchen, sorry, uh, recipe, recipe about the menu. So it's also an algorithm. You have a series of steps to follow and you have a certain result. So by themselves, that's nothing mysterious. Uh, well, computer always works with program that are series of steps. So there are algorithms, have always been algorithm, algorithms. But uh, since uh, 15, 20 years, the idea of algorithm sort of shifted because uh, the um, well, programs in programming and the data available produce new kind of algorithms that are really different from the previous one. That's why I think that the way we talk about algorithms now is that the new thing are not necessarily algorithms, but the specific kind of machine learning algorithms. The fact that the, fact the algorithm now seems to be able to learn by themselves more and more autonomous and that they use uh, the so-called big data, a different kind of data uh, that uh, are, so, in a sense, the raw material that algorithms are using. And many of us uh, heard um, these uh, things that algorithms control our lives nowadays. And I was uh, wondering, do we always know what goes into those algorithms, especially, as you say, with the neural networks? Do we always know what are the workings? Well, no, that's uh, the scary, challenging, but also fascinating aspect of the algorithms because uh, we don't know, well, the point is we, well, I, me, myself, I'm not a programmer, so I cannot program myself. So lay people, but also many programmers themselves um, have to face a deep level of transparency in the machine because these new algorithms, the advanced called deep learning algorithms, are able to learn by themselves, they decide themselves what to learn, but in the most advanced one, they also de decide by themselves how to learn and in which direction, and the, the designer themselves, in many cases, cannot understand how the machine is working. And that's, of course, is a huge challenge. But not only, you talk about what we know about how the machine works, and there's another level of transparency, because these machines very often are fed or they use the so-called big data, which are data which they find most cases on the web. And they are produced from many different heterogeneous sources. And the data themselves are not controlled, selected, cleaned, uh, organized as the previous data that were used by probabilistic procedures. This new algorithm use different kind of sort of dirty, not controlled data, which are an additional element of uh, um, well, complexity, but also possible dangers. Uh, there's a lot of uh, right debate about uh, how data and algorithm cells can be biased, they can be produced, uh, um, well, unequal results uh, and uh, unfair results, which are partly corresponding to the intention of the programmer, partly, basically, uncontrollable. So as we have these technologies contributing more and more to our everyday life, can you give us a few of your favorite examples? Well, that, that's really difficult because, uh, well, you say that's, uh, um, well, uh, there are some examples of things that we, everybody, use in everyday life. Uh, yeah. Siri, the phone, Google, uh, Google Maps, um, this also the sensor around that we are not even aware. Um, 
but also fascinating are the ways where the, in which technologies work with algorithms, with this uh, controlling procedure, uh, of which we are not even aware of. But the favorite ones, you know, we sociologists have difficulty in choosing which is the favorite, the less favorite, because well, all these phenomena for us are, most of all, interesting. <laughs> even the negative ones, in a sense, are interesting. And so. So what would be your favorite positive ones then? And then we can go to negative. <laughs> positive is also possibly the negative one. I'm fascinating. I'm a generation that still remembers a world where we are not connected communicatively with the, or the people all the time. And that's amazing, interesting, and of course terribly scary. This is also a feed into this concept of uncanny valley with the sometimes when we don't really understand what's happening or it uh, strike, strikes slightly too close home. Yeah, yeah, that, that's an interesting <laughs> phenomenon. But um, well, well, the way the concept is used, uh, or the way I know it, is uh, well, especially on robots or also. It came with robots, but also in general with algorithms. Uh, the idea that we are trying since decades to build machines or um, procedures that are as possible closer to our behavior. But when they do it, we are terribly scared or we don't feel at ease. For example, the robots, the people, the, if robots now, the people uh, building them are, of course, very clever and very experienced. If the robot is too similar to human beings, uh, people don't feel at ease. And so that's, um, so that's why they make this strange feature with the strange, strange eyes and strange faces that actually are not really similar to our, ourselves. Or even if you find that, that uh, um, a program is uh, producing itself, communication contents, uh, is able to talk with us, is fascinating. You know, the, the idea that people can also get in love with the... Um, digital systems on, um, that's, well, that should be the goal of these technologies that are presented, but when we face it, the feeling is uh, um, really not um, comfortable. Oh, yes, for sure. And this, this last thing that you mentioned, it's really disorienting in some way when you, when you understand that it's not a living thing talking to you, you know, but algorithm. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, but that's where the idea of artificial communication comes in. Uh, because I think that a lot of this uh, discomfort that we have and worries and a lot of the debates about the so-called scared and um, debated um, singularity, the idea that the machine may take control and, uh, um, well, be more intelligent than human beings as a competition. At the moment, the machine becomes more intelligent than human being, something terrible is expected to happen. I think it's simply misguided in many cases. I don't think that the machines are good in some way or that's no, there are no worries. But the, the competition between human beings and machine is not what worries me first because I think the machines are not intelligent. They want to be intelligent. So that's not a real problem. What we are producing are is a network that, uh, um, first of all, makes our communicative abilities much more um, well powerful. So, 
all of these technologies um, of course they're not living as we as we understand cognitively but they are really contributing to the organization of our knowledge so can you tell us what kind of ways uh, we sort of use to organize it yeah 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 um, maybe I start from a relatively simple example that uh, is uh, um, common in the debate. Um, take, for example, this, uh, um, the new um, translator programs, um, like a, a deep translator, Google translators, so on. Uh, they are algorithms, and uh, they are now, I remember a couple of decades ago, we, there already were some form of automatic translation, which was sort of useful, but ridiculous. It made so many mistakes, the text were not useful and so on. And now some um, of these products produce excellent text. Of course, you correct some word or another, and sometimes they, they are funny misunderstanding, but in most cases, the result is, uh, is ex- really extraordinarily good. And uh, um, there is one of the points where I see the difference, because if you talk with the programmers, it becomes clear that they change the attitude from reproducing intelligence to producing communication. Um, until well, 20 years ago, they tried that to teach the machine the rules of the language as a human being would learn it, that the rules of the grammar of the language to put a, like, a dictionary of a possible broad addition of the words. So the idea that what, the more the machine was able to do what we do when we translate, the better it would work. And now what they are doing with these uh, machine learning algorithms is they, we have, we have uh, translator program, programs which have been produced by programmers, for example, a program translating from um, English to Chinese, for example. The programmers don't know Chinese, and the machine itself doesn't know Chinese at all. It doesn't know English. The machine doesn't understand the text, but just finds in the huge amount of data that is available on the web, patterns, examples that allow to transpose, translate a text from a language to the other without understanding what it means, without understanding the rules, but producing a very useful um, product. And that's what I understand, the example I understand with the shift from uh, intelligence to communicative capability. So basically, it's not really necessary then to have this deep understanding of something in, in terms of algorithmic translation, as, uh, as you say, uh, for, for, for um, the program to be able to perform well, isn't it? That's what I mean. I think it seems that in many cases, and uh, some programs which are working, or well, most are probably working with, uh, which were machine learning, say the machine doesn't have to understand. It's actually too heavy a burden. Claiming that the machine should understand what the text it produces, the text it works with, sort of make it much too complex without uh, real advantages. The machine has to find patterns, correlations, structures that allow to perform as if it understood the text. But understanding by itself is not required. So if we touch on uh, the other uh, very tangible example, uh, like image search, uh, for example, online, or image recognition. So how do, do algorithms feed into that? Oh, that would be um, uh, also another example. Um, if you see uh, how this program works, for example, the, the famous image of a cat, uh, we, if we were to recognize uh, the image of animals like cats, we have some features 
that we find like the, the ears or the like so the whiskers I'd call it, or something. And we have a sort of an idea of a cat which we try to find in the different uh, realization, bigger, smaller, um, gray, uh, white, and so on. Um, the algorithm does something completely different. It calculates aspects which are completely not understandable for us, like regularity in, um, in distance between some features. So it finds out something which for us in many cases is completely not understandable. But the result is it's an amazing ability to recognize images not only of cats, of animals, but as we know, of human faces. And uh, so all this uh, image recognition, um, very powerful um, programs. Yeah, and that's it, a great transition to my next question is actually connecting now our human our human side to all of this. So how do human rights play into this? Well, human rights are one aspect. Human ability, are, if I may, is a previous one that we have to consider because, uh, well, the shift from intelligence to communication doesn't mean that human intelligence becomes irrelevant or the human beings are not needed in producing new forms of information. Because that's where this big data and the data that the algorithm finds on the web come in. Because the algorithms became able to learn to learn more and more and to work in this amazing, powerful way only at the time when they could access the data that we, human beings, produce on the web, after the so-called Web 2.0, the participatory web. Then we, we every, everybody, each of us, produce a lot of data with our behavior every day on, on the web or otherwise, with GPS or moving streets where there are sensors recording our behavior or surfing the web or participation in social media and so on. And these are the materials which are inherently intelligent because we produce them with our intelligence, with our ability to um, move in the world. And these are the material that the machine uses in order to produce something that allows them to behave as if they were intelligent. So without the contribution of human beings, machines would not be able to communicate in this intelligent way. So in a way, they, they actually need us as well. <laughs> Of course, they need us, absolutely. We need a machine, but in a sense, what the machine gives to us is a, a re-elaborated version of the intelligence that we, human beings, put into the system. So once our information is out there, that's a really a sort of a pertinent sentiment going around, it's really difficult to get it back, or it's even impossible. So what about the right to be forgotten, basically, on the internet? Yeah, that's uh, that. It was a big debate in the 2014, where in Europe the European Parliament, the Court of Justice, decided that, that we have a regulation to protect the right of individuals to be forgotten. But it's it's a, it's an amazing another of these amazing shifts because for millennia, for us human beings, the big problem has always been to remember, to be able to remember, to keep the information, because, you know, our, our intelligence, in a sense, our mind, uh, well, the difficult thing is to remember, not to forget. If you do nothing, naturally we forget. 
and we have all these techniques, uh, like mnemonic techniques, but also books, in a sense, are all tools that help us not to lose information, to keep it, to be able to remember. And now, with the web, the entire frame seems to be upside down, because um, what is comes by itself, without any effort, without any uh, work from our side, is that things are remembered, not they are forgotten. We have to decide explicitly if you want to erase something, which means forget. For example, think about your emails. Usually one keeps everything. There's no reason to erase things. So normally everything was, is, is remembered and it requires decision and work in order to have something forgotten, which changed completely the, 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 the attitude. That's why the regulation of the right to be forgotten became needed because normally the information are not lost. They are there and they are there not only as uh, um, the right, uh, the legal um, frame requires of some criminal acts and so on that should be maybe forgotten, but everything is there of everyone since we are moving on the web. So what the person in his childhood or his teenager years does on the web uh, remains there if you don't have some regulation and can sort of change, limit, uh, burden our life after decades. Yes, for sure. And uh, like you say, children, but also other um, individuals who might be in a vulnerable position. So it's really difficult to know what exactly you can put out there. Yeah, and in a sense, everybody is in a vulnerable position because we don't know in the present what we want in the, we want in the future. So it's always difficult to see. We do something which is completely harmless now, and it can be become a vulnerability on aspect that we don't know about in five months, five years, 50 years. And this concept of artificial communication, actually, it helps me think about it in a slightly different way as well, uh, rather than uh, saying general artificial intelligence. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it can help. Also because I think it can help to find a solution for this mystery, because it's not clear how you can um, block forgetting because or, or increase forgetting in a sense because we have a lot of techniques for increasing remembering but if you have to reinforce or increase forgetting you immediately see that's a paradox because to forget something you have to focus your attention on that and then cancel it which is sort of paradoxical it's very very difficult to have a technique for forgetting but if you refer to communication the solution seems to be a little more plausible because um, there are techniques in communication to uh, reinforce forgetting that don't work in the same way. The algorithm works in a different way. The algorithm can do something which is actually an equivalent of forgetting because they can produce so many data, so many noise and contradictory or diverse information that at the end it's so difficult to find the information that the people doesn't want to have remembered. And so, practically, there lies an equivalent of forgetting. So, what's in store for the future of artificial communication? Uh, well, uh, the question is how um, the, this shift from intelligence to, artificial, to 
communication can be realized. But I have the, the impression that in many cases, to understand what's going on, my experience is, if you um, try to think about uh, not reproduction of intelligence, but something that in a complex way affects the way we communicate with each other, or the information that can circulate among us, even if not produced by human being, but they are produced through different um, procedures, a technical procedure, I think many questions become more understandable. For example, uh, one aspect that I find fascinating also how predictions become more and more relevant. Because in many cases, if you have something that you cannot, unfortunately, you cannot understand, you cannot use it to explain what's going on, but you can still use it to predict if the, the information is reliable. And many projects on the web now are shifting towards a more and more important role of prediction. Yes, predictions play a huge role, uh, don't they, in, in our society in general, from the weather to stock markets. So do you see that algorithms are going to play like, basically the main role in these areas? Well, there's, uh, people are talking about a form of algorithmic prediction, which is actually different from the forms of prediction we are used to. Because uh, when we think about prediction, we usually think about probabilistic procedure. We, have, uh, we gather data and use this data to face the uncertainty of the future. So um, then we know something is, we don't know what will happen, but we know, for example, think about um, getting ill or possible disasters or possible positive um, stock market behaviors. And we have an idea that we are not sure, but might go, it might, we know that it's going to happen on the 70% of the cases or 30% and so on. And that's how, we, in a sense, we prepared for the future, our form of dealing with prediction. Algorithms work in a completely different way. And uh, they don't have probabilities. They claim to tell you not what will happen for an average of the persons or for an average of the development. They claim to give you to, to find out a pattern and tell you what will happen, for example, to a singular person. Not how many people will get sick, but uh, uh, if a per particular person with, uh, with well, me or my cousin or any of you uh, can become sick in five years of what. And that's a completely different way of dealing with the uncertainty of the future. And it's actually a bit more intuitive way for a human as well, because we're really bad with dealing with uncertainty. Yeah, sure. But uh, that's uh, but uh, this uh, um, it's intuitive, it's attractive, but of course it remains uncertain from another from another point of view. And even if this uh, um, prediction were really reliable, and we're not never sure about that, the question is. Uh, how can we combine this individualized prediction in a social structure? For example, think about medicine. Our medical systems is prepared not to deal with my particular idiosyncratic um, health development, but the idea is to offer drugs and treatment that work for everyone. But since everyone, everyone, each of us is different, how can we have a health system that takes care of all this completely idiosyncratic different uh, um, health developments. So now thinking about the bigger picture, so why should we be thinking about these topics and researching all of these questions and how will it uh, benefit our society? 
I, I think we have no choice. <laughs> that's, uh, I think there's something, I don't know, I'm, sort of, I, I'm biased on that, I'm a sociologist. There's something which is going on, and uh, we have to try, and some, we have a lot of benefits. We see it already now. Uh, well, one of the fields I'm talking about, medical fields, we have procedures that are really um, enormous developments. But of course, they have a lot of, of uh, possible challenges and risks and threats and so on. And uh, um, I, would, I would say the algorithms that new develops are good, artificial communications, good or bad. I don't know. But it's something different. And uh, what I want to do is try to understand what's going on and try to prepare, to be prepared to some possible, for we talked about bias, inequalities, uh, reproduction of uh, um, unfair behaviors. That's what we have to be prepared for. We have to prepare for something for which our present legislation or our society, our political system are not prepared. And then we have positive experts and some also negative one, but we have to try to understand what in the new developments are different from uh, the structure we, are, we already have. So are you optimistic then that we will be able to uh, sort of manage all of these technologies for the good of everybody? That's a really difficult question. Because... Well, something which I'm worried is uh, um, think about the political system and that's the development now towards more and more, uh, well, people talk about uh, um, fake news and populism and polarization and so on. Uh, there's something which is clearly connected with the role of algorithms. Uh, our communication, the social media and the way how things are produced have a different shape from what the, are at the base of our modern democratic society. And it's not easy to find a way to preserve the warranties of our, well, live together in such different conditions. I will say that's impossible, but it will be difficult. Yeah, for sure. And it's so important to be raising these questions and having these discussions as well, isn't it? Sure, sure, sure. And there's a lot going on. There are a lot of interesting um, development. And what um, should be a little uh, giving something to think that the developers are very much often um, guided by the technology because the programmers and the people in technology are developed this system which are really running and running, become more and more able to do things, and we just follow that. The theoretical reflection on this uh, new development is sort of lagging behind. And uh, I have the impression we, have, we need more theoretical reflection on uh, on the technologies. And what discoveries during your writing process and your research for your book, art, uh, artificial communication, surprised you the most? Well, but it's sort of a busy, easy thing, but what surprised me most is how the idea of the... Um, centrality of human beings is still there. Uh, that how the, the debate on the new development is never, nevertheless, even if the machines are getting more and more powerful and, uh, uh, and uh, um, well, able to do things, that the, the idea still remains how we are competing with them, with the role of human beings, even in many cases, not the central one. For example, 
uh, in the field of artificial intelligence, something which keeps coming up again and again is something like the Turing test. Uh, the idea, a test was proposed by um, Alan Turing 100 years ago uh, that is meant to um, test whether uh, a machine is intelligent uh, by checking if a user of the machine understands is aware to be interacting with the machine and not with the human being. If the user doesn't realize that they're talking with the machine, the machine is meant to be intelligent, which is a very, very strange idea because um, what it measures is, of course, not the intelligence of the machine, but on the term of what they're seeing, the ability of the machine to communicate with us. And why should we be particularly interested in that world? Everybody is now communicating with bots every day. People talk with Siri or people without even knowing it. People playing video games online or booking um, well tickets and so on. We interact every day, many, many times with bots. And we don't, well, we don't notice it. The machine passes the Turing test every t- many times every day. And in many cases, we don't even care. But still, the idea that knowing if a human being is, intel- is, uh, is there is meant to be something relevant, so detached from the reality of what's going on. Do you ever get fearful that artificial intelligence is going to, be, to get so intelligent that they're going to rise against the humanity? No, I don't. I, I, I'm very. I'm worried that many things can go wrong. I would say it's going to be well. In any case, that's. A, I'm not optimistic by itself, but the idea that the machine become more intelligent than us doesn't worry me at all because they are not intelligent. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, do we have the representation of AI in our popular culture a little bit off then? Or maybe do you have your favorite AI from the film? Um, well, no, not really. <laughs> That's, uh, the well, there are some very clever things that are, of course, popular. Um, think about she or her. What was it? The, 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 I don't know how to it in the, the original title. With the, what was his Joachim Phoenix interacting with the operative system, which of course the fascinating voice of Scarlett Johansson. It was clever as an idea, but I don't think it's realistic. So, I, for instance, it's entertaining, but it doesn't seem to me to uh, really. Well, I think that the imagination we have about the um, about artificial intelligence. Is in many cases disconnected to what's really going on in the field. Well, I'm glad that we won't have the uh, uprising of machines <laughs> anytime soon, at yes. least. <laughs> Not in the form we expect, in a sense. <laughs> but you know, the development in this field um, almost regularly uh, disappoint expectations, and the real um, powerful or important developers were often often unexpected things about nobody predicted the email or even the social media were not predicted in this form. We expect something to happen and then luckily or not often the technological development takes another way. Well this has been a truly fascinating discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? 
Uh, yeah, you might have uh, understood, uh, perceived a little. I'm very fascinated in prediction. And now I, I'm leading um, well, a five-year-long project financed by the European Research Council with the name The Future of Prediction, uh, where we try to observe how the forms of prediction are changing when algorithms are used. And the subtitle is a Social Consequences of Algorithmic Forecast in Insurance, Medicine and Policing. That's a much more empirical, concrete uh, project where we try to, where we want to explore uh, how the new form of algorithm prediction impact in the field of our society where still rely pretty much on probabilistic forms of prediction. Think about insurance or well, how precision medicine uh, Israel has a different form of prediction. Oh, that sounds, sounds great. We, we are enjoying it very much. And we're the field where at the moment there are the most surprising developments is the one which seems less fascinating. Well, well policy, of course, you know, predictive policing where algorithm claim to predict was uh, who was committing a crime before we committed it is of course fascinating. But insurance seems to attract well, a sort of dry field, not a really adventurous one, but there are amazing um, developments going on already there. For example, the idea that uh, you can have individualized risk prediction, and the algorithm tells you when who is going to have a car crash or get sick and so on in advance. And for the insurance, it seems like a great opportunity until the people insure realize that if that were possible, insurance would be would break down, would not be possible anymore. Because the mechanism of insurance relies on the fact that we don't know precisely who will get sick or will have a car crash. Therefore, everybody is, is available to pay a little insurance fee that in many cases paid for nothing, but protects everyone. It, we, the, the project we say, uh, the resource of this uh, um, of these technologies is shared in uncertainty. The idea that nobody knows the future and the other also don't know it. And that's why we deal with that together. And individualized predictions like the one the algorithm can provide would make the system completely impossible. Harvesting the power of algorithm for good. Yeah, in a sense, yes. And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Yeah, my book will be um, released, uh, or it's already now, in the next, uh, the official release date is uh, May 24th by MIT Press with the title Artificial Communication. And um, yeah, of course, it can be found on the web or can be found in the old-fashioned um, bookstores, which are always a, a nice place to visit to have uh, inspiration for other interesting things to read. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. It was a really, really interesting conversation.